Welcome to the Modern Elder Woman Podcast. We are here today to start a conversation, to assemble resources, and to build a community. This podcast is for empowered women in midlife and beyond who are preparing for or in the midst of a powerful third age. My name is Amy A. Palmer. I am your host and facilitator for our conversations. All women are welcome here. And we will be highlighting and spotlighting all the women over 45 who are living an untraditional lifestyle, whom I like to call blueprint breakers. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. Would love to hear from you, love to hear your feedback, ideas, suggestions, or if you'd like to be part of a future episode, you can reach me via email at amy at amyapalmer.com. Today is part two of our conversation with Jeanette Liardi, social gerontologist. This week, we are talking about who will take care of us when we're old. Last week, we talked about being caregivers for our parents. So if you have not listened to that yet, I strongly recommend that you do so. But this week, we turn the attention to ourselves. Those of us who are blueprint breakers, we have heard the message since we were very, very young around you want to find a partner, you want to have a family, because who's going to take care of you when you're old? You do not want to die alone. Well, this conversation that I have with Jeanette today just really helps completely reframe the, the perspective. How do we embrace this next phase of life and best prepare ourselves and best prepare for our future. And to keep in mind, we are not at a disadvantage because we don't have a partner or kids. Having a partner, having kids, having a family is no guarantee of having somebody that's going to take care of you. So Jeanette's advice and guidance is reassuring. It's stress-reducing. It's uh, practical and extremely helpful. Once again, she also supplies a list of resources that I will link to in the show notes. Um, I put it in a document and I have a link to the document in the show notes. So please uh, check that out and enjoy our conversation. Jeanette brings a wealth of wisdom, real life experience, and uh, just a variety of um, insights and the way that she just approaches this whole topic. I think you're going to enjoy it as much as I, I do. So uh, again, you're going to want a piece of paper and a pencil to take some notes because she is chock full of valuable information and insights. Hello, Jeanette. Good to see you again today. Hi, Amy. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks for uh, this part two. Yes, I'm really excited to jump into this second topic today. We're really focusing on ourselves this time. Uh, You know, who's going to take care of us when we get old is is sort of the the question weighing on a lot of a lot of our minds. especially those of us that are, that are single or, yeah. or we, or we don't have kids, you know, we've been sort of getting that message since we were little about, oh, you know, you don't want to die alone. You know, that, that whole, 
that whole piece. <laughs> yeah, and I and I don't I don't want to be a downer about this, but having kids doesn't necessarily mean they'll take care of you. So exactly, or having siblings, or having a spouse, or you know, it, I mean, it, it's an individual yeah. on an individual basis. So yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, so I I really wanted to sort of dive into a, a little bit of this for for those of us who don't have a partner or children, what steps could we take to be prepared for our elder years? Well, you know, this is why I'm glad we're doing this in two parts, because I would refer people back to part one when I talk about the very first question that you asked me about the person you're going to care for. And I talked about the three H's, uh, health, home, and hardiness. Well, Mm -hmm. ask those same questions of yourself, Mm -hmm. you know, what is my health situation like? What are the things I'm gonna to need to be prepared for uh, as the years go on? If you already have a chronic condition, one or more chronic conditions, and many of us over the age of 65, I'm, I'm 70, I'm gonna be 71 next month. Um, many of us are dealing with more than one chronic illness at the same time. So start to anticipate what those greater needs are gonna be in terms of your own health. Your housing, do you wanna to plan to remain aging in place or are you open? Mm to changing your life situation. And there are different, you know, all kinds of options these days, you know, home sharing, you may want to stay in your home, but if you have the room, you might want to decide to, you know, do kind of a golden girl setup where you have somebody else sharing your house with you, Mm -hmm. Uh, or there are all kinds of adult living communities. So what's your house situation? And then hardiness, what's your social life like? What's your social network? How strong? I think that's the part that we're most concerned about is, do we have enough people close enough to us who would be willing to help us take on some of these, you know, co-caregiving tasks? And that's that's a hard thing to build up because it does take time to make good mm-hmm. friends and you need good friends, not just acquaintances. So that probably is the part we need to work most on is developing our social networks. Um, and it, it does take time, but, you know, there are all kinds of things you could be doing now. Volunteer for something, for a cause that means something to you. If you attend a house of worship, do you have, uh, are there people in that congregation, that community that you feel close to? There's something called the village to village network. I don't know if you've ever heard of the village movement, but these are geographical neighborhoods that create their own nonprofit network, you know, it, mm. on the idea of it takes a village, it takes a village. Yeah. So uh-huh. if you belong to one of these villages, you pay, and every village is set up differently, but you pay a um, an initial membership fee and some have sliding scales and some have scholarships available. And uh, then you that means you have a community who then will help you take on some of these tasks. Like if you need to be driven to doctor's appointments or if you need your gutters cleaned of your on your house or whatever. The, the hub of this is called, the main website is called the Village to Village Network. And then you can find out where there are villages in your own area that have already been established and consider joining one of those. I belong to one, a village where I live. So there are all different options, meetup groups, you know, and in these days of COVID, it's, it's a challenge because we're doing a lot of things virtually still, but mm-hmm. um, these are the things that we need to be thinking about in terms of taking care of ourselves in the future. That, yeah, that's an excellent point. I mean, I, I feel fortunate because I do have a great social network, um, and I've never heard of the village, the village to village, the village network. village network. Right. That I think is amazing. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I can, I will uh, supply you with the link so that you could post it uh, in the, in the uh, story notes. 
Um, Fabulous. But yeah, you know, then there are there are hundreds and hundreds now. It started in Beacon Village in Boston. That's the mm -hmm. place where it first started. But now they're all over the country. So um, that that could be a good place to start checking out. And I would also uh, suggest anybody Google the phrase solo ager or solo aging, and you yes. will find people who are devoted to that topic specifically. Um, I can, you know, I will supply you with some names and websites, but there are people like Sarah Zeff Geber, Wendell Kornfeld, Carol Marek, Aileen Gerhardt. These are people who, who help people in their solo aging set up their communities or give them tips on how to do that. So I will, I'll supply you with those links as well. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. You mentioned that, you know, once we hit, uh, you know, into our sixties and our seventies that we will have medical things to consider health to consider. Um, and I know this is one of the topics I've heard you speak about before, which is why I, I would really love to get your input about how, how can we be our best advocates with doctors and with health professionals as we age? The key word in your question is advocate. That's what we need to be. A lot of times people are very passive about their health care. I know that when I was taking care of my parents, and I don't know if it was necessarily a generational thing, an older thought process, but they used to feel that the doctor was in charge and whatever the doctor said, and don't ask too many questions and don't make any waves. I think we need to be more proactive in our health. And so the best way, and, and actually doctors and other healthcare providers really like it when we advocate for ourselves because then we can be clearer as to what we need. You know, they're not mind readers. We need to help them understand what it is we want and what it is that concerns us. So what I've done, the way I approach it is I came up with a, a series of six tips based on the word health, H-E-A-L-T-H. And each tip begins with a, a letter of that in that word. So the first letter is H. And I would say that's for hire your team. Consider yourself as a, a person who is contracting people to work with you. So you're looking for, for subcontractors, you're looking for contractors, you're looking for a doctor that's the right fit for you. I would say find a doctor who is compassionate, who is competent, and who's a good communicator. Those are the three main things I would look for in a doctor. How do we find good doctors? Well, um, sometimes word of mouth. If you have friends who rave about their doctors, you might wanna check them out. But know that you can go to your county or your state medical board, it usually has a list of licensed doctors and you could look up their histories, where they went to school, if they're board certified. So check them out. You know, we spend more time researching a house to buy or a car to buy than we do our own doctors. What's more important than your own body, you know? So let's do our homework about that. So hire your doctor and, and consider that that person is a part of a team. So the nurses, the uh, physical therapists, anyone, social workers, whoever you work with, they should all be working for your benefit. And the key idea is something called person-centered care. You should be the focus of your care. Not what's convenient for the doctor, not what's convenient for the hospital, but what meets your needs as an individual. So that's the first tip, hire your team. The second would be E, enlist a care partner. We all could really benefit from having a care partner, especially if we're going to be in the hospital, which is another reason why it's important to have really close people close to you who would be willing to do that. Find someone who is going to be really an, an extra pair of eyes and ears for you. That person may accompany you to a doctor's office visits if you'd like. 
and could just be listening as the doctor talks with you and can remind you, oh, remember the doctor said this and this. So to help you make sure you've gotten the instructions correctly. And somebody who could be your advocate in the hospital as a liaison. If you don't have a healthcare partner, many hospitals also have patient advocates, a patient advocacy department or patient representative department. And that person can help you be the liaison between you and, your, and whoever's taking care of you. What's the next letter? A, ask effective questions. The average amount of time a doctor spends with a patient, believe it or not, is about anywhere from 11 to 15 minutes. That's it. I mean, you're lucky if you have a doctor that will spend more time with you. And there are many doctors who do. But especially with COVID, especially with shortages of healthcare providers, this is going to be more and more of an issue. So if you've got just those few minutes with your doctor, bring two or three questions, write them down, bring them, bring two or three questions to your appointment of the things that concern you the most. Um, So that, you know, when the doctor says, oh, you know, how can I help you today? You can just say, here's, here's what I'm concerned about. Also, if you think that you're, if there's something that's concerning you that doesn't have anything to do with the condition you currently have, and you think, well, this isn't related, ask it anyway, because doctors are trained to know, look for signs that you may not think are related, could actually be related to your condition. And part of asking effective questions is if a doctor wants to do a test or put you on a different drug, ask questions about that test or drug. What's the purpose of this? What are some possible negative effects? Is there anything more natural I could do in the meantime? So ask those questions. Again, being your own advocate. And and I would think that 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 takes a little bit of preparation before the appointment. And yes, because sometimes the information's coming at you so fast that you're not even processing. It. Absolutely. So, and the yeah. other thing, and, and you bring up a good point because the other thing is I've actually had doctor's appointments where I brought a tape recorder to the, uh, to the office. Mm. I didn't have somebody with me. And I asked the doctor, is it okay if I tape this conversation? It's like taking notes, except you don't have to do the taking of the notes. And I haven't met a doctor who would say no. Um, right. So do that. And then also, even if you think of a question later on, it's important if your doctor or hospital has a portal, sign on to that portal. You can always email your doctor or the nurse Mm -hmm. who's helping the doctor and ask your question then. So know that you can remain in contact with your doctor. You don't have to think of everything all at once during that meeting. Things can slip by. The other thing is um, learn about your body. So when you go to the doctor's office, learn what your numbers are. How's your blood pressure? Are you, is it being kept under control? Uh, have your um, A1C checked out, uh, hemoglobin A1C, to see if you're pre-diabetic. Know that kind of a number. Know your body mass index. Know those kinds of things. Your cholesterol levels. So those are things that your doctor should be following up with you on. So learn about your body. You are the expert on your own body. I don't care how smart a doctor is. No doctor knows your body the way you know your body. So if you have some symptoms or you tell your doctor, well, I can't really be on this medicine because these are the symptoms I have when I get on it. Let that doctor know. Doctors are like detectives. Give them more evidence and they're able to come to a solution. And there there can always be other drugs that a doctor can say, all right, if you can't tolerate this drug, let's try this other one out. But give them the information. Don't hold back. Let them help them out. You're a care Mm -hmm. partner with your doctor. You're you're a team. You're your peers. Then there's the letter T, take charge and control. So when you're with a healthcare provider and that person, again, who may be rushed or just doesn't really know you that well, feel free to ask your doctor to slow down 
or to repeat something. If you don't quite understand, or if the doctor uses a term you don't understand, ask the doctor, what, you use this word, what, what do you mean by that? Some doctors, many med schools now, are doing something with, that's called a teach back, which I think is a wonderful procedure to do. And that is when the doctor has explained something then to you, let's say a whole protocol or a test or whatever, then the doctor can say, um, in your own words, tell me what you understand about what I've just said. And if the doctor doesn't say that, you can volunteer that. You can say, doctor, you've told me a lot of things. Do you mind if I tell you what I think I've heard? That's a teach back. And that can help solve a lot of problems right away. Tell them to slow down, repeat themselves, whatever. Also, know, part of taking charge and control is knowing that you are entering into an oral contract with your provider. If you agree to certain things, if the doctor said, I'd like to put you on this med and you need to take it twice a day for 14 days, then that's the contract. You said to your doctor, okay, I'll do this. If you run into problems doing that, then you let your doctor know as soon as possible. But you need to be a compliant patient. Doctors are trusting the fact that you've come to see them for certain important information and that you're going to follow up. So follow up, keep records of your progress. For example, mm -hmm. if your doctor would like you to be taking your blood pressure, maybe you can you know, get a, a home blood pressure monitor and take your blood pressure once a day or however often the doctor asks you once a week or whatever. But it's like your homework. You've gone to school, you're in the classroom with the teacher, the teacher gives you homework, then do your homework. That's one way you can be really effective as a patient. And then finally, H, have vital plans in place. The vital plans you should be having in place are advanced directives. Do you have a living will? Have you named a healthcare power of attorney, somebody who can act as your surrogate if you can't communicate to your doctors what you want and a living will? And be and you can be specific. I personally, I have a living will, but I also have a four-page single-spaced document attached to my living will talking about how I define quality of life and what things mm -hmm. I would want done and not done and who to ask and what, you know, other, all kinds of details. Again, giving your doctor as much information as possible. And then the most important thing about having vital plans in place is having those conversations. Talk with your doctor about what you want, and what you don't want, and especially talk with the people around you or with your family. If you have uh, adult children or a spouse, let them know what it is you want and don't want. A lot of times people are uncomfortable having those conversations because they don't want to burden they're, they don't want to raise the issue. It's uncomfortable. Believe me, as a caregiver, I was so grateful that I knew what my parents wanted. I was their healthcare power attorney. And so I knew what they wanted. It relieved me of a lot of guilt, a lot of doubt, a lot of questioning. Am I doing the right thing? Yeah, I'm doing the right thing because I'm doing what they want. And that doesn't have to be a relative, right? I no, mean, it doesn't. That's no. whoever you does, whoever right. you designate. Absolutely. Whoever yeah. you designate as your healthcare power of attorney or your care partner, let them know what you want. Yes, it doesn't have to be family member. And a lot of times, you know, especially if you have family members who are very far away, but you have a really trusted friend living right in your town, your mm -hmm. city, that might be a, a, a more effective person to have with you so that the decisions can be made right away. They could be on site or working with your family, however. Mm -hmm. But again, it's important to have the conversation. Don't put the conversation off, especially when it comes to end of life matters. Let them know what you want. Let them know what you don't want. It's going to really help them in the future. They're going to be grateful that you've had that conversation. Mm -hmm. So those would be my tips. Okay. You mentioned when you were talking about enlisting a care partner earlier in, in the steps, you mentioned patient advocacy, patient advocates. Right. Those are sometimes 
people who are employed by the hospital, is that right? Or they're volunteers? They could be volunteers, they could be employed by the hospital, or they could be private. They're private um, companies that provide patient advocacy services. So again, okay. Google the term patient advocate and see what pops up and, okay. uh, and start exploring, sure. So to summarize, we've got the acronym HEALTH, right. and it's <laughs> hire your team, enlist a care partner, ask effective questions, learn about your body, take charge and control, and have vital plans in place. You got it. That's awesome. Thank you, Janelle. That's great. Sure. All right. So is there any available resources or anything that we could look to for women who need to find care later in life? Anything specific that we should be considering? I don't know of any specific organizations that are addressed solely to women, but I guess that's something you can Google as well. I did mention those names, Sarah Zeff Geber and Wendy Kornfeld. I will, I will provide their contact information, um, but they help men as well, as well as women. But be aware of what we talked about last time about gendered ageism, about mm. uh, you know how women, we can be misunderstood or judged because we are female as patients. Sometimes, I mean, this doesn't happen very often, thank goodness, but sometimes people might think that if we're overly concerned about our bodies, they might consider us, you know, hysterical. By the way, mm -hmm. the word hysterical comes from the word, his, the Greek word hystera, which means womb or uterus. That's where that <laughs> word came from, believe it or not. I believe it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so being female and being and aging alone, just be aware of the fact that we may have additional challenges in getting our needs met. and advocating for ourselves. So be very mm -hmm. proactive when you advocate for yourself. You have that right to do that. Mm -hmm. but, uh, right. but the people that I mentioned um, might have extra advice for women, okay. specifically for women. Any advice around managing the anxiety around aging? Ah, now you're getting to the heart of everything I, I talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh... So here's the big question. Why are we anxious about aging? Like what's the big deal about <laughs> aging? Why are we so afraid of it? You know, uh -huh. I think our anxiety is due to three things. One, the first is our ignorance about it. We don't really know a lot about aging. We assume a lot about it, but a lot of what we assume is actually wrong. So I'm, I'm going to give you a couple of ideas about that. The second thing that causes our anxiety is our um, acceptance of false stereotypes that are imposed upon us. A lot of times by for-profit companies that make billions of dollars off of keeping us scared, you know, about aging. The whole anti-aging industry is, is based upon the fact that we dread getting older. So that's why we need Botox. We need to dye our hair. We need to do all kinds of things, accepting those false stereotypes. So I'm going to bust a few. And then uh, the the third thing, which is also very, very important why we're anxious is because our society doesn't really support empowering older adults. Yeah. We are a lot of times we're just marginalized. If we're not productive in, as, in the same way that we are when we're middle-aged, we kind of, you know, people want to pressure us to retire, hurry up and retire already. And our needs aren't really attended to. All you have to do is see the effects of what happened during COVID toward older adults and how the, the one of the first early messages of COVID is don't worry about it. It's only killing old people. You know, that's, that's a real instance evidence of how our society dreads and marginalizes getting older. Mm -hmm. So ignorance about aging. Well, here's the big thing. Aging isn't a disease. It's a natural thing. We're supposed to do it. 
You know, right. if you're alive right now, hearing my voice, you're doing it, you're successful, okay? Because you're alive. So aging isn't a disease. It's not solely a process of deterioration and decline. When we think about deterioration and decline, that's what's known as senescence. And that's a purely physical thing that can happen to our bodies as we get older. As we get older, we become more prone to certain diseases of old age. Centuries ago, very few people got cancer because they didn't live long enough to get cancer. So cancer, diabetes, um, arthritis, certain conditions. But aging itself is so much more than deterioration and decline. It's growth, it's understanding, it's acquired wisdom and experience. A lot of times people are afraid of uh, you know, losing our cognitive abilities. Believe it or not, most older adults are cognitively healthy. Two out of three people over the age of 90, their brains work perfectly fine. Two out of three people over the age of 90. Now, when I mean working perfectly fine, I don't mean the where did I put my car key syndrome because we all get into that. Right. And by the way, that can start in our 20s. Yeah, exactly. It already it already has. Yes, it already has. Right. I would I would guess that everyone who is listening to this has had some kind of episode about why did I walk into this room? Why did I open the closet door, the refrigerator door? You know, that's that is fine. That's part of how our brains change as we get older, our short-term memories get uh, more challenged. But here's the stuff we don't know. Most people don't know about aging, that our older brains are actually better in some really fundamental ways. And I'm just going to name you a few. First of all, people think that we're born with a certain number of brain cells that, and they just die off as we get older. Totally not true. Scientists didn't know this until the 1990s, but we can keep creating more brain cells until we die, if we keep our brains healthy. Now we do lose some brain cells because of uh, just wear and tear, or we can abuse them, you know, substance abuse, getting poor sleep, poor quality sleep or not enough sleep, that could really harm the brain. So we really need to develop good sleep habits. But if we keep our brains healthy, we keep generating more nerve cells until we die. And those nerve cells, the more we learn and experience and challenge ourselves, that's what makes the nerve cells connect one to another. So we can have trillions more connections as we get older than we had when we were in our 30s or 40s. What does that mean? It means that we have more pathways in our brain to get to the material that we already know. And of course, as we live longer, we have more and more knowledge. We learn more and more stuff. So if people wonder why it takes us a little longer to, to come to an answer, it's imagine driving through a, a place that's loaded with super highways and you're coming to forks in the road all the time. It's going to take you longer than if you just had one road from point A to point B, if you're mm -hmm. going to have to make all these detours. But the positive part of that is that you have more stuff in your brain to have access to. You have more knowledge than you had. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we also get better at learning what things are relevant and what's irrelevant when doing a task. We know the shortcuts. We've created the shortcuts <laughs> that we didn't know about when we were 30 years right. old. I remember uh -huh. older people telling me, oh, you could skip that step. You don't have to go through all that. You could just go right from here to there. And they're right. They were right because they, they found the shortcut. So those are ways in which we get better as we get older. One of my favorite things to talk about is the fact that we as we get older, we use both hemispheres of our brain simultaneously better than we did when we were younger. And the reason for that is we have a left and right hemisphere, but they actually don't touch except for a bridge of tissue in the middle called the corpus callosum that gets thicker and thicker as we age until we're in our 50s. That's when it matures, in our 50s. And so at that point, we start to problem solve more differently 
uh, than when we were younger. So whereas when we're younger, the young brain tends to want to come up with fast answers. Oh, it's either this or that. Let's do this. Oh, no, let's do that. The older brain, we get much better at looking at problems from different perspectives and say, well, yeah, solution A looks good, solution B looks good, but have we thought about the possibility of this going wrong? Or have, what about this happening? We see the gray in life. Life isn't as black and white as when we thought it was when we were younger. Mm -hmm. We see the subtleties. We see the gist of a problem. So that's another incredible asset we get as we get older. And then the final thing is we uh, can regulate our emotions better. We don't sweat the small stuff as much as we get when we get older because we've gone through a lot of bad stuff. And so believe it or not, older adults, as, as hard as COVID has been on us and 90% of all deaths have occurred with people over the age of 65. So we have been hit the hardest by COVID. Right. But you know what? We've also dealt with it the best in terms emotionally, better than younger people have. That was a study done by Laura Carstensen at Stanford University that she found that older adults are dealing with COVID better psychologically, emotionally than younger people. That's because our brains physiologically actually change so that we are not impacted as hard by negative things as when we were younger. And that makes sense. If you've gone through a lot yeah. of negative things in your life, you said, well, I remember my parents saying, well, I've gone through a depression. I can certainly go, the Great Depression, I can go through this. Right. Perspective, right? And, exactly. And, Think of yeah. all the things you've gone through in your life. And then we measure it com today compared with that. And, you, and we can tend to say, all right, I'll get through this too. I'll find a way. And remember, we're really good at finding ways. Yeah. We're really good at flexibility and being resilient. So one way to manage our anxiety around aging is to know about this good stuff and not feel so bad about getting older. Getting older is a really good thing. I just wish the rest of society, most of society understood that. So right. that's what I'm about is getting people to understand that. I love that. That that is fascinating, and I didn't know that information about uh, about the brain. That's that's so interesting to hear that. Yeah, yeah, and it's all backed by hard science. And I think we're all trying to start to change things. I'm seeing conversations yes. happen in different places. It's not yes. on a mass scale yet, uh, right, you know. Right. As you know, I, I'm optimistic about the direction that we're all heading with this. And I think the direction we're all heading is because of the fact that people are living longer. So the older population is getting larger and larger and larger. You're going right. to hear more of these conversations because we are demanding these conversations. Right. So a lot of times people are now talking about, well, are, is anybody too old to be president or, you know, so it's politics is entering, aging right. is entering the sphere of politics. It's entering the sphere of economics. So these conversations are going to be more and more in the future, happening more and more in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that we can agree on is that we all want to live our best lives right? Even as we're, as we're entering this age, how can we best embrace this as we age? The first place to start is between our own ears. Think mm. about how you feel about aging. What are your thoughts about aging? Do you dread, do you, you know, do you dread getting older? Are you afraid of getting older? A lot of times we can be what's called internally ageist. We can get down on ourselves for being old or self-deprecating, or we could say things like, I'm too old for this. I can't do this at my age. You know, have we ever caught ourselves saying that? I used to say that about myself a lot. I used to say, I'm, I'm too old for this. And you know, when I used to say it is when I was impatient about something that I thought was meaningless or trite. It's like, I don't want to be bothered with this. So instead of saying I'm too old for this, I realized that I'm using the word old instead of the word wise. I'm too wise for this. 
been there, done that, don't want to waste my time on it anymore. So in our own ways, we can all be ageist. And it's hard not to be ageist, especially when we've had decades and decades of all of these messages. Look at commercials. Look how they make fun of old people. Look at late night talk show monologues. They're filled with, with ageist jokes in ways that they would not be filled with racist jokes or sexist jokes or homophobic jokes. Why is it okay to make fun of old people? I think it's because we are so afraid of getting old that we want to keep a distance between the us and the them. I'm not an old person yet, so I can make fun of old people because I'm not there. But we're all going to be there. Ageism Mm -hmm. is the only prejudice we are all vulnerable to. Not all of us are vulnerable to sexism or racism or homophobia, but we're all going to be vulnerable to ageism. So if we don't solve it now, our kids and our grandkids, they're going to have to solve it. And by the way, ageism can start with kids as young as three years old. They can start picking up on it's not good to be old messages as early as three years old. So Mm. we need to be role models and show what, what positive, proactive aging is about. So check your own feelings about aging. Also, how do we embrace aging? Share your story, your time, and your talents with others. What is it that you've got that other people really could benefit by? And recognize that you've got something still to share and and not only still to share, but maybe something you've just learned that you could share. So share your story, your time, and your talents with others. Be open to surprise and to surprising others. Show up in places where people don't expect you to be. I have a friend who loves to go dancing at at two in the morning and at these clubs (laughs) and she's my age. And I remember her saying to me, well, you know, I feel kind of funny. I'm the only older person there. I said, go do it anyway. Yeah. They might think you're funny. They might make fun of you to the, to their friends, but maybe you're planting a seed and they're saying, Hey, I want to do that when I'm that age. I hope I can still be doing this. I want to do that. So show up where people don't expect you to be. And demand your right to be where people don't expect you to be. Demand that society reality checks its expectations of you. If you want to dye your hair electric pink, or if you want to go on a kayaking trip, go do it. Once we become adults, there's no such thing as age appropriateness. Gee, is this uh, is this outfit not appropriate for my age? What's age appropriate? Age appropriate, as long as you're not hurting yourself or others, you can feel free to do whatever you want. So if you want to wear a certain outfit, wear a certain outfit. Uh, you, you, can, you can influence people in ways that you're not even aware of. They can look at you and say, wow, that's you know, pretty gutsy. I like that. I like that being that way. Question and change any situation that makes age an issue. So any situation where age or gender or anything else is not an issue. So if you're, you're attending the meeting of your city council or your um, you know, county commission or something, and you look around you and there aren't any other old people there, ask why. Just as if you would look around the room and let's say there were no minorities in the room or there were no men in the room or no women in the room or no young people in the room. By the way, ageism goes both ways. Mm-hmm. We can be prejudiced against young people too. So if there isn't enough age distribution in a place where there should be age distribution, question that. Offer suggestions, ways of making things more intergenerational. That's going to be the way we solve ageism in the future is having many more intergenerational contacts because if it can start as early as three years old in a kid's head, the earlier we can start having these discussions and talking what's real about aging. And I'm not talking about pie in the sky, Pollyanna stuff. Yeah, there's some not so great things about getting older, but you know, there were some not so great things about being a teenager, if I remember correctly. (laughs) That's true. You know, or being a kid. So every every stage of life has its not so great things. 
but let's focus on the great things. And finally, the thing I'd love to tell people is to think and not or. This is a technique that's used in improvisational comedy. If you've ever seen an improvisational comedy troupe, troupe asks the audience, you know, give us, give us a situation. So somebody says, all right, you're, you're on a raft, uh, you're, you're stranded on a desert island with uh, somebody. So that's the premise. The people in the troupe then react to that. And what they propose, the next person picks up on. The, per, the, picks, the next person doesn't say, oh, that's not real. We're, in a, we're on a stage. How could this be an island? You don't do that. You think and, not or. So this is what I like to tell people. Think and, not or in terms of aging. You can't see me because this is a podcast, but I wear glasses. <laughs> My hearing is not as great as it used to be. And, not or. And I think I'm the best teacher I've ever been. I think I'm the best writer I've ever been. I know I'm much happier in certain ways than I've ever been. That's my and. So what's your and? Yes, you're getting older and, not or, and we're not either young or old. We're not either in good shape or falling apart. We're not either fortunate or unfortunate. It's all a mix and we're all on a spectrum. So what's your and? What is the stuff you can contribute? And chances are, I would bet there's something you know, whoever's listening to this, something you know that somebody else would love to learn. Find out who that person is and teach it to that person. And then learn from that person what you don't know. That's what's going to build all those trillions of connections in your brain, is to keep, do, keep being engaged. Be, your, be an advocate. Get out there. Be proud. Declare your age. I always declare my age. It's not enough to admit your age. I think we should be declaring it. It's something to be proud of and lucky, mm -hmm. you know? So those are, the, those are the ways I would suggest dealing with uh, embracing age. Your, your excitement and passion <laughs> and optimism, it's contagious. Like, it, it, <laughs> I mean, it's, um, so, I mean, clearly you're aligned with your values, with, with, what, with what you've been doing and you're, you're impacting everybody around you and oh, helping okay. with this, helping with this, this, I mean, cause you're right about starting between like, what's between our ears and how do we think about it ourselves? So hearing how you view it and hearing your experiences really helps with that. Mm. And mm -hmm. then, you know, and taking it to that next step of sharing our stories, connecting right. with others, calling it out when we see it, you know, right. all of those things. And there are ways of calling it out that you could, you could call it out in, in kind ways. You don't, yes. you, know, you don't yes. have to be angry about calling it out. I had an experience where I was at the, uh, in a supermarket and the cashier who was clearly decades younger than me, said to me, uh, did you find everything you wanted, young lady? And I, I, said, I said to her, do you have eye problems? I'm sorry if you have eye problems, because I have gray hair. I clearly have gray hair. I said it with a giggle. I said, oh, do you have eye problems? I said, I'm old. I'm an old person. And you know what? I'm okay with that. And you yeah. can be okay with that too. So yeah. there are ways of just calling uh -huh. it out. Kindly, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like that. Well, thank you. You've given us so much to, to, to think about and so much to act on. Um, so thank you very much for your time. I'm so glad we did this second session. Oh, my pleasure, Amy. Thank you so much for, for spreading this word. And I encourage everybody to talk, have conversations about getting older. Keep talking about it. Keep talking.
Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Modern Elder Woman podcast, Who Will Take Care of Us When We're Old? I want to give a very, very special thank you to Jeanette Liardi for these last two episodes, uh, just so full of valuable information. Please check out Jeanette um, at JeanetteLiardi.com. That's J E A N E T T E. L-E-A-R-D-I dot com for more information and resources and her services as well. So thank you. Thank you, Jeanette. And to our listeners, thank you for sharing this episode with your friends, your family, anyone who may benefit from the information. And once again, I'm going to humbly request that you Go to our podcast and rate and review and subscribe so we continue to get the word out and we continue to expand on this powerful community of modern elder women. Have a great week breaking those blueprints.